Yeah, well back there, but I'm, I'm really glad that you are here. And uh, we're actually going to start by reading from the Jesus Story Week Bible. And, you know, spoiler for the adults in the room, this is actually the passage that we're studying from the scriptures today. And so it syncs up really well. And, and kids, if you remember, we are going through this uh, Old Testament series called BC, and you're a part of that. And so, if, kids, if you're watching at home, uh, that's also what we're going through this week. Miss Bailey is not here. Uh, she is on a trip this week, and so I am going to read this to you, uh, and I'm going to try to do it with all the same enthusiasm uh, as Miss Bailey, and um, I know that I will fall short. And, uh, but nevertheless, if you have a Jesus Storybook Bible Kids, um, you can grab that, or on, if you're at home and, and you want to look at it, it's on page 76, and it's called The Forgiving Prince. Kids, let's go ahead and read this together. Adults, follow along. It says, Jacob had 12 sons, but, all, but of all his sons, Joseph was his favorite. One day, Jacob gave Joseph a splendid new robe. It was beautiful and rich with all the colors of the rainbow, but it made Joseph's brothers jealous. They wanted rich rainbow robes too. Don't blame them. Then, to make matters worse, Joseph kept on having these special dreams, I dreamed I was the greatest. I was king, Joseph told his brothers, and you all bowed down to me. And Joseph, for the record, is about 17 years old when he's saying all this stuff, so you got to love the 17-year-old little bro just letting his big brothers have it, saying, you know, I guess I had a dream that um, I was awesome, and you thought I was awesome and bowed down to me. Um, now, I'm sure you know, even if Joseph didn't, that f telling your brothers things like this isn't a very good idea. Joseph's brothers hated him even more. They wanted to kill Joseph and his dreams. Pretty intense response. Uh, and one day, that's exactly what they tried to do. They tore Joseph's rainbow robe off him and sold him to slave traders for 20 pieces of silver. Next page. The traders took Joseph to Egypt and made him into a slave. The brothers went home and lied to their father, telling him that Joseph was dead. That's the end of that dreamer, they thought. But they were wrong. God had a magnificent dream for Joseph's life. And even when it looked like everything had gone wrong, God would use it all to help make the dream come true. God would use everything that was happening to Joseph to do something good. Meanwhile, though, things were not looking good for Joseph in Egypt. He was far from home and from his dad. Then he got blamed for something he didn't do. And even though he had done nothing wrong, he was punished and thrown in jail. But God had not left Joseph. One night, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had a scary dream about thin cows gobbling up fat cows. What on earth did it mean? He didn't know. But Joseph was a dream expert, so Pharaoh sent for him. It means a famine is coming, Joseph explained. There won't be enough food. Pharaoh was so pleased by Joseph's skill that he immediately took Joseph out of jail and made him a prince. Now back home, Joseph's brothers had run out of food, and everyone was hungry. God's special family was in danger. If they didn't get food soon, they would starve to death. So Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt to buy food. They came and knelt down before the new prince. His brothers didn't know that the prince was Joseph, but Joseph knew who they were. Joseph's dream, the one about his brothers bowing down to him, was coming true. It's me. Joseph cried. When they saw it was Joseph, his brothers were afraid. They had wronged Joseph. They had sinned, and they knew it. But Joseph would certainly punish them. Now Joseph would certainly punish them. But Joseph looked at his brothers, and his eyes filled with tears. Even though his brothers had hurt him and hated him and wanted him dead, in spite of everything, he couldn't stop loving them. 
And so this is a really neat story. And kids, I, again, I would encourage you, if you have a clipboard or adults, if you just need to color on something, start coloring in this picture of Joseph. But that's not the actual end of that story. We're going to get to the end of that story in just a moment for kids and for adults. Um, but if you can pick up on this, you can pick up on that things went really wrong in Joseph's life, right? At least according to his own plans. If he had made plans for his life, they would not have looked like that. And so how in the world is God present and working in the midst of circumstances like that? And so there, there's actually a story. It's not, that's a true story about a guy named Joseph. There's another story about a guy named, uh, a kid named Shasta. And it's one of my favorite stories. It's in a, it's a book called The Horse and His Boy. And there's a character named Shasta. And, and he gets to this point in his life, a lot of things had gone wrong for him as well. He was on this incredible journey that seemed like it was filled with one problem after the next. And there's a quote, it's a long quote, I'm going to read it to you, but it's at the end of the story, and he comes to this place where he was feeling incredibly discouraged about the circumstances of his life. And so I'm going to start reading to this, track along, this is Shasta. And being very tired and having nothing inside him that is nothing to eat, Shasta felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that something, someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark, and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. When he, what he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. And Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. You see, he was riding a horse along a pathway and it was really dark and cloudy. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope that he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he has felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway in a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on walking at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last he could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said, barely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea came into his head, he said, almost in a scream, you're not, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please do go away. What harm have I ever done to you? Oh, I am the... I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. And then Shasta goes on and he tells him all about his sorrows in his life. He says, uh, 
how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by this fisherman guy. And then he told this story of his escape and how, they, and now how he had been chased by lions and forced to swim for his life and all of the dangers in this city they had passed through and his night amongst these tombs that was terrifying and how beasts howled at him in the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded his friend. And also how very long it had been since he had anything to eat. And as I was thinking about this passage that we're going to be in today, and I was thinking about this story, it occurred to me to ask you or to wonder what you would say uh, if I asked you to tell me your sorrows today. Like this thing walking next to Shasta who says, tell me your sorrows. What would you say if I said, tell me your sorrows? And it, I mean, take a minute and even just think back, like, what are, the, what are the sorrows of your life, the circumstances, the brokenness around your world that have this real deep hold on your understanding of life? It's beginning to influence not just the way you think about your circumstances, but how you think about God in the midst of those sorrows. How are those sorrows shaping what you know about God rather than God shaping what you know about those sorrows? That's my question for you ultimately today. And so in the, in the midst of the evil that has been done to you or will be done to you in your lifetime, the brokenness that you are experiencing, you might find yourself asking if God really cares, if he's really there at all. Maybe he's forgotten me. Maybe he's angry with me. Where was God when I lost my job? Where was God when my plans were ruined by sickness? Where was God when my spouse left me? Maybe you lost your job or got divorced because of brokenness in you. That is a real potential that you failed out of college or whatever it is that seems to define your life because of sin in your life. Like that, that may be true in a sense that there's consequences to our sin, and if that's you, if you're saying, no, I can trace all of these things, not to an external evil, but it, something in me has brought about this brokenness in my life, um, you need to remember that God's blessing is not something that we merit. There are consequences for our sin, but, Jesus, uh, but in Jesus, God is blessing you and has promised to transform you, not because of your greatness, but because of his greatness. And at this point in my life, that's actually, it's not the evil out there, it's the evil in here that's the biggest uh, hindrance for me. It's my biggest uh, struggle to believe that God loves me and accepts me and approves of me, is committed to me, that he hasn't given up on me, mainly because of brokenness in me. There's a song called Who Am I uh, by a band called Need to Breathe that came out recently, and I, I really love this song because it speaks to that. It says, oh, while I'm on this road, you take my hand. Somehow you love who I really, sometime, somehow you really love who I really am. I push you away still you won't let go. You grow your roses on my barren soul. So for some of you, there is a sense of your own brokenness, your own wickedness, and you're, 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 you're wondering if God is actually gonna uh, be committed to you because of how broken you are. But for others of you, it's not uh, the evil in you, it's the evil that's been done to you that causes you to distrust or doubt God. It's brokenness around you 
that's causing you to doubt God, which is actually, if that's you, that puts you in, in not, not in the minority, but in the majority, okay? That's actually most people. Most people don't um, distrust in the scriptures or disbelieve in God because of intellectual reasons. They might claim an intellectual reason for distrusting or disbelieving in God, but at the end of the day, most often, it's actually a personal reason. How could I believe in a God who let this happen to me, who let that happen to my family? And so maybe you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe it's not the consequences of your own sin that's bringing about brokenness in your life. Maybe COVID has crushed your industry, and so you're left jobless, and that's not your fault. Maybe your spouse, uh, maybe your spouse left you because of something that's entirely uh, on them, that you didn't do anything wrong. Now, that's shocking because spouses are always owning a percentage, but, but nevertheless, maybe, maybe the majority of the problem in your marriage is not you. And your spouse still left you. Where is God then? Where is God in the midst of those broken circumstances all around our lives? Tim Keller says it this way. He says, with God, this is what we kind of need to learn today and embrace. With God, silence is not absence. Hiddenness is not impotence. And if we go about judging God's faithfulness and his goodness by looking at the surface of our lives, we're actually making a huge mistake. And we're gonna see that through the life of Joseph. And so as we're looking at the life of Joseph, it's connected into this longer study that we're doing of the history of God's plan for rescuing us, of redeeming us, that we see playing out in the Old Testament. But this Old Testament study, B.C., is not a study that's just an intellectual exercise for everybody. That's not why we're doing that. If we're just like looking to do a history course, we could do that on our free time, uh, do that in a seminar. Why would we spend all these Sunday mornings, these places that are meant to cultivate and renew worship in the lives of our people, why would we spend them looking at history? History. It's because the way that we see and understand this history will impact the way you understand God's plan for your redemption, what God is doing in your own life. Not just redemption as a whole, your own redemption. And what I want you to see ultimately is that God is with you and for you, even when the world is against you. When your plans fail, you can know that God's plans won't. When your plans fail, you can be sure that God's plans will not. So in the, we're going to be in the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. All the verses will also be on the screen if you, uh, if you don't have a Bible. Or you can download one or uh, at home you can grab one. And so Genesis chapter 50, it's the last chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, but, but Genesis is um, really connected into these five books, the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, the teachings, that, that, that all, all of these five books actually uh, roll together in, in, a, in a really cohesive way. Um, but we're in the last book, or the last chapter of this first book. And we're looking at Joseph, and we read about the context of Joseph just a minute ago, uh, but a little bit more, he was Jacob, Jacob's 11th son. And so Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And Abraham was this man that God called out of nowhere and who responded in faith to God's promises. And, and he promised to bless him, and that blessing went from Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, which we saw last week was just a crazy kindness of God to choose Jacob. And Jacob's name became Israel. Israel had these 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. But one of these sons was, 
was Joseph, and he was the 11th son. And as a teenager, started having all these dreams about how he's going to be, um, uh, really how his whole family is going to bow down to him. And uh, his brothers didn't like it. They took it too far, though, and they sold him into slavery. Which, the, at, a, at a high level, you can, you can like read it and be like, you can kind of make light of it because it's like, oh man, these just, this brother conflict, you know, these brothers just letting each other have it. But it was dark. This is an extremely dark moment. Can you imagine? These are your brothers. And, and they, the slavery piece was actually the reduced plan. The original plan was just to kill him. And then they said, actually, let's, let's just sell him into slavery. Judah, ultimately the, the line through which Jesus comes, says, actually, maybe we can make some cash out of this deal. Let's just sell him. Not, not surprising why they respond the way they do later on in this passage. Jacob or Joseph makes lemons out of lemonade. He gets sold into slavery in Potiphar's house, high-ranking Egyptian officials, uh, and he uh, basically becomes uh, his chief of staff until uh, his, the, the guy who he's serving, Potiphar's wife, tries to seduce him. He won't give in to that, and she claims that he assaulted her. So then he's thrown into jail. So he's wrongly, uh, in, he's, he, everything about it is wrong. He's sold into slavery. Then he's wrong, falsely accused, and he's put into prison. And uh, the amazing thing about it, one, he ends up basically running the whole jail uh, eventually, but the amazing thing is that his faith in God remains intact this entire time. That's the amazing thing about Joseph's story is that his faith remains intact the entire time. We don't know the day-to-day struggle if it's like two years into being in jail because he was in jail multiple years. It's not like he, he was there like overnight or for a few weeks. He was there for years and years wondering, does God see me? But his faith remains intact. We know that because when it comes time for him to speak, he speaks in faith. And so uh, eventually Pharaoh has a dream. He interprets the dream, puts him in charge of everything. He becomes this prince of Egypt, which is just outrageous. And, uh, and, and through him, through him is uh, not just Egypt, but his own family is rescued from this famine, okay? And so that's where we pick up in Genesis 50. Jacob has come down. Jacob and all his relatives have come down to live in Egypt, but then Jacob dies, And so here's the context, or that's the context for Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And it's a really interesting response, right? Because uh, what happens basically is that uh, Joseph's dad dies, and so all these brothers are in this situation where they're like, Maybe, maybe Joseph is just being nice to us because dad was still alive. So they concoct this plan. For all we know, this is actually fabricated. We don't know that, Joseph, or that Jacob gave these instructions to Joseph. For all we know, they just said, guys, we've got to think of a plan because Joseph might get ticked and he's going to take us out now because dad's dead, and so we've got to make a plan somehow to protect, us, protect ourselves. So these brothers, when they get together, it's, 
this group of guys, when they get together, not great things come out of it, right? That's what we can see. Nevertheless, um, they come up with this plan, and they say, hey, uh, you need to be nice to us. Dad said to be nice to us whenever he dies, okay? And, um, and do, I, I just want you to trace in here what is not being said. What's not being said is that um, there's no evil that has been done. Or to put it another way, evil is extremely prevalent in this story. And everybody knows it. His brothers say, Joseph might, Joseph might pay us back for what? For all of the not nice things that we did to him? No, for all of the evil that we did to him. They say it multiple times. Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Evil is real. Life is full of evil. And Joseph, Joseph, God's chosen one in this, in this story, he's been the recipient of evil things. Okay, so to navigate and go through our lives as if evil is not real or not, our lives are not full of evil and evil's not being done to us, then that's not what the scriptures are saying and that's a fantasy land that you would be living in that would, you would quickly be disen, disenchanted with. Everybody in this equation knew that evil had been done to Joseph. That's why they were asking for forgiveness for their sins. Do you see that? But Joseph, Joseph points something out. He says that while he is in the seat of high authority, you see that he's in a seat of incredible authority in Egypt. Pharaoh actually says, besides me, there's nobody more high-ranking in all of Egypt than Joseph. And in a global famine, the guy who has the keys to the grain becomes pretty important. Whatever Joseph said is what was done. And so his brothers appeal to his authority. And they say, hey, will you forgive us of our sins? But Joseph says that he's in a high seat, but he's not in God's seat. And that the evil that had been done to him was ultimately between them and God. This is so interesting to me. Sin may be committed against you, but it is ultimately an affront to God. And the scriptures, you know what they say about vengeance for that sin? They say vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And for his record, you might think, oh man, this person did that to me and I'm going to pay them back. Let me tell you, your vengeance does not compare to God's vengeance. So whatever you think you're going to pay somebody back for, God's vengeance burns with infinite fire for infinite time. I think 10,000 years into uh, uh, the abyss of hell, you might say, maybe, maybe they've paid enough. God says it's not enough. Because the affront is not just against you, it's against a holy God. That's what, that's what Joseph understood, was that all injustice, all sin is ultimately an offense against God. So he says, I'm not gonna sit in his seat. I'm not gonna dole out his justice or his forgiveness, that's between you and God. And that's, for the record, also what made Jesus so, uh, in a worldly sense, you'd have to say crazy. That's what the Pharisees thought. They thought Jesus was crazy. He was jaw-dropping to the people around him because Jesus would walk up to people and he wouldn't say, hey, you go work that out with God. He would say, hey, you're working this out with God and I forgive you. He would forgive people of their sins and the Pharisees were like, you can't do that. He said, yeah, I can. It's between me and them. 
So Joseph, he says, don't be afraid of me. I'm not sitting in God's seat to judge the evil that you committed against me. And then he goes on and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so the second thing, the first thing we see is that all evil is ultimately offense against God, but the second thing we see is that no evil can thwart the, the plans of God. All evil is an offense against God, but no evil can thwart the plans of God. Do you see that? That's what he's saying. It doesn't matter that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. No matter what the evil is, you cannot thwart God's plans for his people. God will not just, and this is what's crazy. This is, this is absolutely um, uh, incomprehensible in some ways to our very finite minds, but God will not just work around the brokenness of the world. God's not just working around it. He's not saying, well, there's a bunch of messed up stuff here and this person did this for the wrong reason, so I can't really use that. I'm trying to get this, you know, I'm working this plan out and so I can't really use all the brokenness. That's not what God says. He will work through brokenness to redeem his people. He doesn't just work around it. He works right through it. And so what we see is that God's plan for redemption is unstoppable. Make that personal in your life. God's plan for your redemption is unstoppable. There's this idea in history. So if you're a history professor, you would teach about uh, this idea of contingency. And it's, it's this idea that every historical outcome depends upon a number of prior conditions, that each of these prior conditions depends in turn upon still other prior conditions and so on. And the core insight of contingency, this is a quote, is that the world is a magnificently interconnected place. Change a single prior condition and any historical outcome could have turned out differently. And so this, it's this idea that's taught Really, it's trying to keep people from some sort of a apathy or resignation about their involvement in history. But what you have to understand is that the complexity that's revealed through this idea of contingency doesn't, doesn't reveal that God is not actually in control or not actually moving history along towards something. It reveals that he is incredibly uh, infinite and complex himself. It's true that history is incredibly, if not infinitely, complex, but we trust in an infinite God whose plans will come to pass. It is so amazingly complex, but God is so amazingly infinite that he will bring his plans to pass. Look at this in Psalm 105. This is Psalm 105 doing this, pulling back the curtain of what's happening. What's God's involvement in Joseph's story? Where was God at? This is where God was at. Verse 16 in Psalm 105, I think we have it up here. When he, this is God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. Why was there a famine in the first place? To bring Israel down into Egypt because God said so. And but before that famine had ever come, years and years and years before that famine had come, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said what God had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Do you see what this is saying? 
You cannot get underneath God's plan. You cannot work around God's plan. You cannot surprise God's plan. God's plan was set from the foundations of time to work his people through this process of redemption until he would come to Revelation 5, Revelation 21, 22, until the end of all things with a multinational, multilingual, multiracial, multiethnic community of worshipers for all time. He is working out his plan of redemption and nothing is going to stop it. He's working through it. He summoned the famine. He sent Joseph on ahead. Do you see that even when things are dark, even when there's no trace of God, of your plans that you have made for your life, God's plan is intact. When there's no trace left of the plans that you had for your life, God's plan for you is intact. But Joseph's life, you've got to understand this, Joseph's life was not the last or the greatest time that we witnessed God's pattern of working through brokenness to bring about healing and rescue. It wasn't the last time, and it wasn't the greatest time. Joseph's life reveals the power of God's plan, but it's not the ultimate picture of redemption. And my hope for you this morning, or you watching this, my hope for you is not that you would see yourself in Joseph's story. Listen to me. I don't want you to see yourself in Joseph's story. I want you to see Jesus in Joseph's story. Sally Lloyd-Jones, she finishes that Forgiving Prince chapter that we had read by saying one day God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything, uh, everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the whole world. Joseph was just the shadow of a forgiving prince that was still to come. Acts 2.23 says this. This is Peter talking to a, a bunch of Jewish leaders saying, This Jesus delivered up, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus is the ultimate example of God using the brokenness of the world to bring about healing and rescue. Don't see yourself in Joseph. See Jesus in Joseph. And that's important because it's through Jesus and not Joseph that you are sure of your place in God's redemption plan. It's not because you can just look at Joseph and be like, oh, I guess I can trust God like that. No, it's because Jesus that you can look and say, I can trust God like that. Uh, because of Jesus, you can know that God doesn't just have a rescue plan. He's got your rescue plan. Romans 8, 28. Listen to me. It's on coffee mugs. It's written all over the place. People don't know what it means. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of the, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that everything that happens to you will be good. You, you know that that's not true. Joseph tells us that that's not true. But in Christ, you can know that all of it will work out for your good. Nothing's gonna pass through God's hands into your life that he will not make. Submit to him to be good for you. Adversity and suffering is not the exception of the, uh, to the Christian life. It's the rule of the Christian life. 
First Peter 4, 12 through 16 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when everything in life seems like it's coming unraveled and everybody seems like they're against you and everything seems broken and it seems like God is anywhere but close to you. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. This is crazy. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you, also may re- that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's coming back. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If you do things that are wrong and you suffer for that, that's not Christian suffering. That's consequences for your sin. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And he finishes up this thought in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's your call, Christian. Not to let your sorrows shape the way you understand God, but let what you know to be true about God shape the way you understand your sorrows. So you remember Shasta. He felt like the, most, the unluckiest person in the world. And after he shared his sorrows with the one who was walking next to him that he couldn't see, this was the response that came out of the shadows. And listen, this is where we'll, we'll end up closing. His response to Shasta's sorrows, listen close. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Do you not think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? Listen close. There was only one lion. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two lions the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus, his friend. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Shasta was no longer afraid of the voice, no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad too. You see, ultimately Joseph came to know what Shasta came to know, that despite the hard things that are unfolding in his life, that God was there. He was always there. And for you, you can know that the lion of Judah is with you even when you don't see him. Even when it looks like he's far off, even when he's hidden or he's silent, he's not absent or powerless in your life. He was the lion. And I listened to something this week about how the certain podcast ends their stories. They used to end it with a sense of wonder and they would kind of culminate in this wonder. Then they began to see that that wasn't sufficient, so they, they realized there was tension in life, and so they ended their stories with tension. But then they came to discover this thing that psychology calls the third, 
It describes what happens when two tensions are held together. When they're brought together, they create something new called the third. And so we know this, that life is full of evil, full of hard, broken things, but we know that God is always working for our good. And Jesus, he is that third. He is that third. And because of him, we don't let our sorrows shape what we know about God. We let what we know about God shape our sorrows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, if we could just get a glimpse of you, I think all of our questions about life and about um, uh, all the things that seem scary to us, all these really hard things, I think that they would all come into perspective if we got a glimpse of you, and I know that one day we will. But I just pray for my own heart, for the hearts of the people in this room, for the hearts of the people that are listening to the sound of my voice, God, would you meet them right where they are and um, not just give them a sense of wonder, not just give them a sense of tension, but give them a sense of who you are for them in Christ Jesus, that we can know that you're working for our good and we can know that you're strong enough to accomplish what you have set out to accomplish. Your plans for us will not fail. And would that put a smile into our soul that no circumstance can touch, God? Would you help us to respond now in worship that you're worthy of? Holy Spirit, would you meet us in that? Would you empower our worship even in this moment that it would not just be a momentary thing, but it would be a sustained burn, a sustained fuel in our life throughout this week, throughout our seasons throughout years. God, would you even call back this, mes- this message to the memory of your saints when they're enduring hard things, the fiery trials that come upon them? Would you allow them to be called back to this truth and rejoice? We're not going through those alone. Jesus, you went first, and so let us follow you in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.